1: Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com allen Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com A-L-A-N.
0: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right.
1: One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Christoph Nering. He's the Chief Marketing Officer, Global Brands at Walgreens Boots Alliance. On the show today, we talk about how Walgreens Boots Alliance is responding to COVID-19. We also talk about Christoph's portfolio of brands that he manages, both store-owned brands, as well as their global CPG portfolio. We talk about the entry differences for market-to-market, where there may be a leader position in the UK and how they've entered the US market or the Chinese market in most recent history. Then we switch gears and talk a little bit about his uh, personal background and uh, career trajectory and, and twists and turns in a moment in time, actually, uh, that you'll hear soon enough that defined his career and trajectory set forward. We also talk about uh, his love of plants, and uh, <laughs> I'll leave it to him, but uh, it, it's one of the most impactful purchases he's made in the, in the recent history. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christoph. Well, Christoph, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: I thought it would be interesting to start with where you grew up. Everyone can probably hear a slight accent. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so maybe we can start there.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. I mean, I actually grew up in, in Ghent in Belgium, which, uh, you know, in Belgian standards is a big city. It's kind of the third, the second biggest city uh, in, in Belgium, third biggest city, actually. But, but it's only 250,000 people. In the Middle Ages, though, it was the second biggest city in Europe, but it went a bit downhill since then. <laughs>
1: i love the middle ages
2: yeah that's our claim to fame
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love that i love that because in the us we're such a young country uh i think all all europeans look at us and go oh those are just (laughs) little babies you know (laughs) (laughs) your history goes all the way back to the middle ages yeah and actually i mean my mother
2: tongue is actually dutch so so that's uh, where the funny accent comes from although i haven't lived in in belgium probably for the now what? Fifteen, sixteen years now. So,
1: well, from Ghent to uh, Walgreens Boots Alliance, what's been your uh, your career path, if you will Yeah,
2: I mean, maybe let me start off with the start, which
1: is I'm actually,
2: even though I'm a CMO, I'm I'm not even marketing trained. I'm actually an electronics engineer. Uh, so, uh, but but I kind of realized towards the end of my studies that's not necessarily what I wanted to do I work on microchips etc so i actually uh, straight out of uni i, I started at png in, in belgium that was and at png at the time they didn't tell you which brands you were going to get so it was kind of the oscar ceremony on my first day and i got always all day stamp packs which um you know truth be told <laughs> were not necessarily the dream brand i wasn't necessarily hoping to sell tampons but there you go. But in the end, uh, I ended up spending five years in that category, actually, uh, two years in Belgium. And then I moved to the, the Western Europe headquarters in Geneva, where I spent another three years on femcare. And the reason why is actually it's one of those categories where you make a meaningful difference in women's lives because, you know, you allow them to get on with their life, whether they're on their period or not. So, so that's why, even though initially my reaction was like, mm, not quite sure, actually, I quite enjoyed working on, on feminine care category, as P&G calls it. And then, after five years of glamorous sanitary towels and tampons, I basically moved on to an equally glamorous category, uh, being uh, laundry detergents, where I spent another five years. And, uh, you know, I started off on, on brands like Bold and Lenore, and then basically got the keys to the castle as I basically led, as a, as a marketing director, Aerial Western Europe, which for the people in the US, it's like Tide US. So, this is a, a massive business for PNG. So, that was a a really exciting assignment uh, being able to lead such a brand and so that, that brought me to nearly teen, 10 years at P&G and, and at that point in time I was like I'm ready for something else and something different because I would say these first nine years probably conclude the first stage of my career which is you know engineer becomes marketeer. I think stage two was just learning new skill sets and and stage two first stage I went for was actually I went from you know, sanitary towels and tampons to Gucci beauty you know luxury beauty which was super interesting for a number of reasons first of all until then I had only led Western Europe you know and all of those diverse markets within Western Europe but then it was a true global business where you know and I now also had US, Asia, Middle East, Latin America so all very very different so that was the first bit the second bit was the business model because you're in luxury beauty which means you have counter business etc so it's not the usual CPG bit and I, I would say with within that it's it's a licensed business so because png had the license uh, on those products from the gucci fashion house so it's it's a super exciting dynamic because in the end you don't you don't have many decision rights. You only have uh, influences, skills <laughs> to use to convince. Uh, sometimes not that rational Italian fashion house that what you're proposing actually the right thing to do because PNG is super rational, and then of course in Italian fashion house, whilst of course they know what they're doing in luxury fashion, uh, might not always respond to the same rational
1: arguments of PNG or would. So that was, was super interesting. I was just going to say that's quite the transitions it just within P&G, I mean, within one company. Yeah, Denver. that was an amazing
2: opportunity, frankly, because, you know, I had done core brands, core businesses, and it doesn't get much more core than P&G's laundry business and their flagship brand. And then within P&G to have that opportunity to actually uh, work on on such an amazing icon like the Gucci brand and and actually work. You know, and meet with the fashion house on a weekly basis to design and create new products, advertising, new in store
1: furniture,
2: all of that stuff is is super, super interesting.
1: Well, and then what, what was the impetus that brought you to uh, Walgreen Boots?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there was a, a, a personal and a business uh, element to that. I think you know, on a personal level, my partner was moving to London and within P&G, there wasn't necessarily the right opportunities for me. It also coincided with a time when actually Coty took over with mixed success, one might argue, the, the P&G prestige business. So I felt it was just the right time to move on. And And as I was moving on, I was carefully looking at what do? i want in line with because this is probably then the third stage in my career where i i wanted another completely different skill set is uh you know how about going to a company that is both a retailer and a CPG? And that's what Walgreens Boots Alliance is. I mean, they're one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest you know, pharmacy chain group, whilst at the same time, we have our own brands that live within our own retail footprint, but also outside. And that creates a whole heap of opportunities that you wouldn't have at a CPG. So, so that was super interesting. And I, I spent two years there first leading their skincare portfolio, and then now uh, more recently, or. Two and a half years ago, took over the CMO role, leading all of the brand portfolio. And that's both our brands that I would call our CPG brands that live out and inside of our own retail footprint, as well as our own brand business, which, uh, you know, private label one would call it, that is Boots and Walk means brand that, that stands on our own shelves.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Well, we're living in this very unique time to uh, talk about. We may have to go back to the Middle Ages to have had a global pandemic at this point with COVID-19. And I'm just curious. I mean, it, it has to throw many wrinkles into business. We're probably both actually sitting at home doing this recording um, at, for one as one example. But just curious how you maybe yourself and, and Walgreens Boots Alliance have been responding during the crisis,
2: yeah, I and mean, definitely, I mean, unprecedented is definitely the word that comes to mind. I mean, who knew uh, that you know um, what started off in in a little market in uh, Wuhan uh, would have created this, right? Um, so, and indeed, I am sitting at home. <laughs> uh, you know, I have been for the past three and a half weeks, and it, it looks like there's a few more weeks to come. But you know, and 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 I must say, I mean, within these unprecedented times, I'm quite proud actually to work for a company like Walgreens Boots Alliance because that's when uh, you know the purpose of our of our business in terms of helping people across the world lead healthier and happier lives has never come truer because you know our pharmacists are on the front line of this crisis. We are actually also one of the world's largest uh, pharmaceutical wholesale companies as part of this group, uh, the Alliance Healthcare part of the business. They're keeping pharmacies worldwide in stock of essential medication, PPE, all of that stuff. So, and at the same time, we're having drive-through COVID test centers on our premises both in the US and in the UK so so again some amazing work that is happening by our colleagues worldwide so it definitely uh, in a time like this uh, a company like ours can can truly live its purpose in a way but of course i mean um, this not to say you know with all of the social distancing measures etc clearly business is tough in these times and to that extent if i speak more to my own side of the business i think you know what, what we've done is it's probably you can categorize Almost in three phases. I think the first phase is make sure that your employees are healthy, are safe, and are all set up to do their job. And you know that in the middle of you know having to do homeschooling and having the IT infrastructure set up. You know, get on Microsoft Teams and, and all of those tools, as well as you know we we have our own in-house content studio. Well, the studio is closed, right? So how do you stay still create high quality content? Whilst people are at home and, and you know, there's a, there's a number of really good IT solutions, et cetera, that we found for that. But, you know, that's probably phase one, which is, you know, try to grapple with the new new the new the world. The second phase for us was I would combine it as, you know, do, don't do any stupid stuff and do good. Uh, and, and with that, I mean, at this time, you shouldn't be spending mass marketing money because if stores are closed etc., that's just a waste of money so you know it's about pulling back on spend that in the current context wouldn't be relevant but equally then adjust your messaging your style your content to the new reality show compassion show consideration but equally do some good like for example we have several CSR partnerships we donated about 200,000 products here in the UK to the hygiene bank and to the NHS workers that are on the front line to really help the vulnerable and the people who are on the front line and i think it's it's important that we do that you know we're also sourcing over 400 million pieces of masks and you know for for all kinds of uh, purposes hand sanitizer I mean you just crank that up and and luckily we have a good sourcing office in China uh, and in Asia that helps us with that that's probably phase two which is don't do any stupid stuff and do some good stuff show that you as a brand care and contribute to society and then phase three is you need to drive some growth because as a brand, you're not going to survive on in step one and two. So you need to make sure that your digital plans are stronger because with the shift to online, make sure that you, you, you do a lot of performance marketing. You potentially expand your digital footprint. If you're in beauty, you probably need some tools with which people can try on products in a virtual way when they're sat at home rather than in the store. Uh, you know, creating products that are more relevant because this situation is here to stay. If you think about immunity, sanitization, protective equipment, masks, you know, what what are brands going to do in that space and where, particularly in my portfolio, clearly, which is a combination of beauty and healthcare and wellness. These are uh, times when we need to make sure that we bring the relevant products to the market. So I guess that's that's probably the three stages that, that we're going through as a business.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, you know the you mentioned you know your your scope, if you will, is the the CPG brands as well as the owned and private brands, if you will, portfolio. How do you think about managing those because they're very different but similar? It's it's very it's a unique construct of having brands that can stand on themselves stand on their own, even maybe even sometimes outside your own channels, and then having you know the the typical store brands on shelf as well
2: exactly i it is and i think you know if uh, and that's why indeed it's the right way of looking at it and splitting that portfolio in two in the sense that you have the cpg brands and and there's one unique feature that we have as a retailer or being both a cpg and a retailer is that we have lots of customer data from our loyalty programs if you think about the the boots at cart program or the the walgreens balance reward if you add those two together we have more members than than amazon prime so so it's it's a huge wealth of, of information that we have, and so and the insights we get out of that help us not just on the brand and product creation side, but it helps us also really on the marketing side because then you can make sure that you you can use that first party data which other CPGs don't have because they don't have a big DTC business, but that's where uh, you know leveraging that gives you unprecedented opportunities and and we truly build a strong brand portfolio on that CPG side, you know, where we have uh, lots of insights and, you know, we have number seven, which is an amazing anti-aging brand, actually number one in the UK and, and, uh, you know, during uh, certain periods in the US, running up to number three and four in skincare, anti-aging skincare. Beyond that, we we have Lizoral, which we acquired, which was a premium naturals brand. We have Botanics, which is a mass naturals brand. We have Soap & Glory. Uh, which is an incredible personality brand in beauty, uh, sorry, in personal care. We have Sleek, that is all about an East London-born brand, which is all about high impact, high color payoff and pigmentation in in cosmetics. We have Your Good Skin, which is in the healthy skin territory. So we built up, because when I started in this business, we pretty much had one brand, one country. And and the, the mission was build this out to a relevant brand portfolio the portfolio that I just mentioned, and then turn us into a formidable global CPG business. And because we have all of that richness in, in first-party data, that gives us a lot of insight that probably other CPG companies don't have or have very uh, have many difficulties in accessing those.
1: Yeah, I may have just one additional, like, practical question here though, because I'm just curious how, how you manage it. You've got the store brands, uh, you know, probably the boots and the Walgreens branded merchandise. And those are, I'm assuming, confined to your store footprint retail locations. And then you've got the brands that may sit across those, frankly, and and then you have brands that may even extend beyond that. Do you structure your team in that manner? I'm just curious how you, the people management side of it, if you will.
2: No, you're right. I I think, you know, and... And it also depends geographically, but indeed I do have what I would call the own brand team, and then we have the beauty team, which is those beauty brands that I've just mentioned. But but even geographically, you know, you, you think about to your point, you need to make some decisions on where you go outside of your own footprint and where you don't. And you know, the, the, the logic, the simple logic there is, you know, if if our own retailer has a big share of a market, like for example beauty, and we have a strong brand like Number Seven. Actually, it makes more sense to keep that brand in our own retailer because it's a footfall driver, and that external footprint is probably more limited. Whilst um, when you your own retailer has potentially a smaller uh, share in beauty, then probably you bring it outside of uh, your own uh, retail footprint, uh, and that's what, for example, is the case in the U.S., where we are saw, uh, sold in Target, Ulta, and as well as Walgreens, of course. So, so that's where, and even a DTC there we have as well uh, direct to consumerwebsite.com, number7beauty.com that we have in the US as well.
1: Got it. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about number seven, because it is beloved in the UK. And like you said, it's maybe exclusively in boot stores and you're selling this in the U.S. and Walgreens, like you said, with Target, Ulta and then your D2C presence. I'm just curious, managing this in two very different markets, two very different, I'm assuming, like market penetrations at this point. What are the big differences as you look at the two different markets, just the U.S. and the UK? And and curious about your perspectives on D2C as well.
2: Yeah, no, and, and clearly there is differences. I mean, uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the, the seed concept where you see the brand and then, you know, you have that life stages of a brand. And, and clearly in the US, many of our brands are at an earlier stage or in particularly in China as we've entered in China as well. But, you know, the, I think ultimately it's about finding the locally relevant insights as well as marketing mix. If you think about in the UK, we're operating, you know, TV print, everything all the way down to performance marketing, upper funnel, mid funnel and lower funnel. Whilst when I look at, for example, how we built the brand in, in the U S if I think number seven, for example, originally uh, there was only, you know, online advertising. We did have some localized what I call TV integrations, which is like programs like, you know, the doctors, et cetera, so in relevant programs that went about clinically, you know, that could have an angle into clinically proven skincare, which is what our skincare lines do on number seven. Basically that w- you would just integrate your product there and, you know, you have The doctors talk about (laughs) your product and how amazing it is, and that was the right marketing mix at the time. But then, you know, as the brand then grows and develops, uh, you know, we did a TV test first, then we did one way in like a region, then we built that out into a a, a one month national TV test, and now we're doing more and more TV as the brand grows and grows. And pleased to say that actually, when I joined. The brand was not even top 20 in the U.S., but by now that brand has become, in moments in time when all the stars align, we we're actually number three or four in skincare in the U.S., which is a, is a massive achievement for a brand that was not even in the top twenty four years ago. Wow,
1: that's, that's amazing. Congrats. That's, that's, some, that's a great accomplishment. And especially as a new player, relatively new player coming into this market.
2: Yeah, you asked about the DTC as well. I maybe I'll give a few words on that as well because, and clearly, you know, we were at Target, Ulta, Walgreens and their respective .com. But I would say, you know, those .coms are more about transaction. So they don't provide a very rich consumer journey, customer experience. And that's where that was probably the predominant reason for us to look at a DTC where you can offer a, a much richer consumer experience, more content, truly introduce the brand, its heritage, what makes it special, whilst on the retailer website you can't really do that. Now we could have just gone for a content website, which is what many of our competitors do. But, you know, again, I, I mentioned this before as well, and we can talk about that a little bit later as well, but which is this whole element of data and the importance of data to improve the personalized experience of your consumers. That's why I think DTC is an absolutely crucial part of that mix and and why we indeed launched DTC, even though I said we do have a Walgreens.com where we sell our product.
1: Yeah, no, well, let's, let's talk about it because like you said, you've got this huge strategic advantage of having first party data, um, in a CPG world where, where you typically don't. And it seems kind of brilliant, frankly, to have the combination to be launching into a new market where you can leverage that first-party data in your D2C environment. I guess, how do you think about capturing the the opportunity that's there?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and that's where, you know, when, when you think about, traditional CPG, of course, they get information of Facebook and, you know, what we call second party data and third party data. And so they try to target their media based on that. And Clearly, that's effective to a certain level. You know, just putting that in that will definitely result in higher ROIs because you you provide consumers with more relevant content at the right time and in the right place. Uh, however, when you have first party data, that just takes it to a, a completely uh, different level because you actually. It's not just based on hypothetically what consumers are interested in, what they might do. It's actually, you know what they're doing. You know what they're buying because you have that first party data. So, you know, just to bring that to life we'd actually, I'll choose not to reveal too many trade secrets, but, you know, to I'll, I'll use an example of Netflix. Actually, it's a very similar example. And, you know, there was this Narcos, they were launching Narcos as a, as a show. And so what they did actually is, of course they know what you're watching on their platform and that's what I would call first party data. You know, they, you know, the type of show, they know the type of shows you're interested in and the current users of their platform. What they would then do is then, of course, all in a, you know, data compliant way, GDPR compliant way, they would pass those email addresses to Facebook or an Instagram. And what they would ask Facebook and Instagram to look at, hey, we're launching a show called Narcos. We think these people would be interested in that can you find out what other things these people are interested in based on their facebook likes their instagram behaviors etc and then once you know that can you find me the look-alike profiles of those people and multiply that and then basically you s- then they know exactly what these people are interested in. And what they then did is they had little snippets of trailer of specific things, like for example, if somebody's more interested in romantic scenes, they might show Pablo Escobar having a romance. Whilst you know, if somebody's more you know interested in murder and whatever have you, they show a killing scene or whatever, something violent. Uh, you know, and if somebody's interested in sports car, they show something sports car. If somebody's interested in vintage cars, they'd show vintage cars. And what a piece of artificial intelligence would then do is they would literally look at, okay, first party data, second party data, what do we know of this consumer? And then in real time, stitch together a trailer that is based on your interests, and then serve that to you at the right time in the right place, which means that Netflix had running at any given point in time, 1.5 million different variations of their trailer that they were serving up based on that data now if you don't have that first party data you can't truly activate that whole ecosystem you can only follow that through up to a certain level that's the kind of stuff that we're doing at walgreens boots alliance as well when it comes to you know just to give a simple example if somebody's not interested doesn't have hemorrhoids what's the point in advertising hemorrhoid cream to you know, right. for example that's
1: right. yeah that's yeah, funny yeah that's a phenomenal advantage that you have. Just the Netflix example alone is making my head hurt. 1.5 million variations of a trailer. But that's personalized marketing at mass. And
2: that's where, you know, we've, we've run similar things for our flu campaigns because, you know, not everybody uh, has the same needs in that space because, you know, some people are more and or have, have the same drivers of why they want it. If you have the flu, of course, you have a certainty. But if you're a carer, it's maybe more about prevention of your elderly parents uh, getting the flu in the first place, you know, and and so making sure that we know what People, What makes them think, are they a caregiver? Are they just a health-conscious shopper? They want to go into prevention. Are they a value seeker, a convenience seeker? Then, you know, is there a local outbreak? Then we can actually say to people, hey, there's a local outbreak. You might want to get your flu shot. So it's it's really a personalized personalized experience. And there's actually, these are not our data, but there's some some industry data that shows that when you look at personalization, you see a massive uplift. Like there's some data that we got from our agency partner, WPP, that showed that, you know. Average order value goes up with 1.4, basket size times 2.1. And the net promoter score on the back of serving personalized content to your consumers actually goes up with 1.2. So those personalized experiences enabled by first party data are only going to become more and more important. And that's where we as a hybrid company between a retailer and a CPG have, I think, uh, an incredible advantage.
1: Well, I've never, I've never thought about personalization. I don't know why I haven't ever thought about it this way, but it seems like what you're doing is just, it's personalization for sure, because it's tailored to the individual or at least their their interest that you can identify or, or understand from a signal of some sort. But it's really about delivering relevant content. And that makes perfect sense that you'd see some of those metrics go up because of relevancy for no other reason.
2: I'd almost say good personalization is when you don't know that you're being personalized to, because, you know, it can get creepy, you know, when you on one device do a search on a trip to ibiza or wherever you're going and then all of a sudden in the middle of another device facebook feed you see that same thing cropping up that is a bit creepy because then like somebody's tracking my movements or you know even all of the rumors about is alexa listening or not all of those things but i think the best personalization is when it just feels like oh this is relevant it doesn't feel it's intruding on anything
1: i love it i love it well let's switch gears slightly you mentioned china earlier you know launching into that market it's a very different geography and um just you're interested you know how, how do you think about geographic market differences especially at launch i'm uh, just curious what you how you approach
2: yeah i think yeah. it's a good question because i mean and particularly china is, is I mean, many companies have tried and very few have succeeded, one, one would argue. I think, again, it's about relevance, right? And, and 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 if I would say one thing is, of course, make sure your product is relevant and don't necessarily try to assume that there is a one size fit all. You know, if you, if you think about global brands like Fanta or other brands, they do tailor their product portfolio to the local needs. You know, Fanta stays ever so slightly different in the US versus Europe versus Middle East. For You know, they just make sure that the product is locally relevant. So that's, of course, a must. And so that's the first thing to start off with. But then once you have that basic element and basic need covered, it's about how do you launch your brand in a, in a relevant way. And for example, in China, you wouldn't do that on TV or, or any of the techniques that we typically, you know, also for my CPG past at PNG, you know, where you just massive distribution and then carpet bomb the market with mass advertising. That's not necessarily the right approach of entering China. And so, you know, in China, it's a very online-driven. It's, it's, they're called KOLs, Key Opinion Leaders, which is basically people call them influencers in, in the West. That is one of the key tools used to actually market in China. And so whilst you know in the UK, I'm more traditional full funnel marketing mix in the US, more digital with a bit of TV. Actually in China, it's about 100% online KOLs. So Again, it's about getting that mix right and also getting the relevant content because if you don't know a brand, you probably want to see a bit of proof that this product is going to work you know in the uk number seven is very well known for its clinically proven skin care in china it is not so we need to make sure that we get the right content then out there that that you know proves to consumers that this brand has the right credentials behind it whilst in the uk you know we can almost take that for granted so so it does need to be a different approach and and it's it's worked quite well for us so far you know if i mean we've we've launched through cross-border e-commerce to start off with so via alibaba tmall and um, in the first year of trading in 2018, they give these kind of rising star awards to brands that reach they have different levels of sales, you know, level one to ten, uh, where ten is the highest. And so within the first year we reached level five. There's only twelve out of a thousand brands that launched that year on Alibaba Tmall that reached that level. And so we, we were one out of the twelve that got awarded a rising star award. Uh, so again, it's it's doing it right in, in the right way with the right marketing mix of course assuming your product is locally relevant.
1: Right. No, that's awesome. I'm curious, not that you want to give away your secrets, but if you were advising your know, other marketers, maybe outside of your category to enter China, is there any any learnings that you've had you feel like are important to to note? I mean, you you've already hit obviously relevance for sure, but
2: I think I mean, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, China is light miles ahead in terms of online penetration. So, you know, bricks and mortar can be a quite tough gig, not just within beauty, but in any category. And it's quite fragmented still, etc. So... My key advice is, you know, and particularly relevant in these times where even we in, in the West are now, I think, making a, a leap uh, for a massive jump uh, into, into online uh, sales. China's already there. Their online penetration in many categories is double of that in, in the West. So that's probably a top tip I would give to anybody. Yeah,
1: no, that's great. That's great. Well, let's switch gears entirely. One of the things I love to do on a on my show is to get to know the person behind the microphone, so to speak. And uh, one of my favorite questions to ask is, has there been an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today?
2: Yeah, I think there. I mean, of course, you're you're made up by many experiences that make you into the person you're now. But but it's, it's One that that sticks up and that uh, it's more from. A a, I would say uh, a leadership belief, and uh, this. I mean, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of a story around it, but I'm not a very big. Book reading person, podcasts are way better, and I, I assume you agree. But, uh, the, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, but uh, it was I was still a, ju- a very junior brand manager, and so I had lots of questions around my leaderships, finding the right style that was authentic to me. And so, uh, and my boss had told me at the time, you know, you need to read this book. It was um, Stephen Covey from uh, Good to Great, and you know, I, I just don't read books. And so, after the third time, he said, Christoph, I know you're not going to read this book," so I copied these 10 pages out of the book that are relevant so please read this (laughs) so he went very directive Uh, but it it talked about the level five leader and and the importance of of humble leadership and again they say it needs to be a combat, they call it level five leadership which is about you know being humble and listen to the people around you whilst at the same time have a restless determination to make things happen and there's one example that really marked me in that space Um, it was when I was uh, to even convince me that, that this was a, a leadership style I wanted to adopt, which is, it was even before when my boss uh, forced me to read these 10 pages. It was actually an example uh, when I was only two and a half years uh, in PNG. I was, I think I had just been promoted to brand manager or as a senior assistant brand manager. And so I was working on a, a project called Always with Silk. And unfortunately, the global group president had just declared that she was going to can the project because she felt it was not right um that woman was actually melanie healy uh, president at the time at png and she was actually in the fortunes uh Top fifty most powerful woman in the US. when she was on number 13, actually. And so she canned my project. And so my, my VP at the time said, like, look, Christoph, I know your brand manager. I was an assistant brand manager, actually, yeah, because my brand manager was on holiday, my marketing director was on mat Leave. So it was just me. And he said, he said, Look, I need you to fly with me to Rome, and we need to convince Mel as we call her, that we need to keep this project. So there I was, uh, two and a half years in the company, in front of this woman that was number 13 on the Fortune <laughs> Top 50, trying to convince her not to can my project. But then that meeting was the most amazing. Of course, I was super nervous. I came in with my slides and all of my fact books and all of that stuff. And I did my presentation and she was generous, she listened, she asked lots of questions. And at the end of the meeting, she said, all right, you've convinced me, let's let's do this. And so she put the project back on the tracks. And even a year later, we won the P&G Global Brand Building Award. And I'm sure behind the scenes, uh, she was the one pushing it. But, you know, she could have easily said, I'm not even going to bother just can it but you know her generosity her listening it just made me feel like a million dollars and and that's how I feel I want to be with people uh, and and so that was very inspiring to me the way, the way she did that
1: Yeah no that's a that's a beautiful example of great leadership and for you I mean take about the uh, the initiative given <laughs> you got to fight for the brand in spite of not having your your management team around as well that's phenomenal and I do want to you said good to great and i think you mentioned stephen covey but it's james collins is the author right? is it
2: there you go you see i didn't yeah, yeah. read it i didn't lie <laughs> i know <laughs> well i just want
1: for, for those listening i want them to be like wait wait a second what, what, what are we talking about so yeah it is james collins but we'll link we'll link to it in the show notes for sure for for those that want to check it out and maybe maybe yeah, the, he didn't the, copy uh, the, the front page tape. of the book <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly no, no no worries no worries well Just curious, I mean, that was a phenomenal experience in early career. So I'm really interested to ask you this next question is, what would you have told your younger self if you're starting all over again?
2: (laughs) I think the big thing, and, you know, I I did sometimes and sometimes I didn't do it, but it's uh, the big thing for me would be swing big. You need to set yourself audacious goals and then go for it. I mean, I think it was Leo Burnett, but you might correct me again, uh, who had this saying that said, you know, if you reach for the stars, you won't end up with a handful of mud. And I think it was, it's super important to set those audacious goals, because when you do, I think the universe then magically conspires to make it happen somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but if you don't have that... And this is, and, you know, for every important moment or every important thing in life, there's a Monty Python clip. But there's this one clip of Monty Python. I think it's called uh, the Olympics uh, for running for people with no sense of direction, I think is is the, is the title of the clip. You might Google it. But basically, so you see all of those people on the starting line, all of those runners, and then the gun goes off, and then they run in all different directions. And that's that's the point. If, if you don't know where you're going and you make that a big, hairy goal, then one you won't get there very fast and two you won't achieve much and and i think you know for me that swinging big and that setting those audacious goals and then go for it i think is is the most important thing that i think anybody can do
1: to also just get some satisfaction out of the job great advice great advice and i keep i'm waiting for the book that is titled, Everything I Needed to Know in Life I Learned from Monty Python. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a silly question, but one that I've, I've started adding to the mix uh, for, for guests like yourself is um, curious if there's been an impactful purchase that you would like to share with us of, say, $100 or less in the last six to 12 months that's, <laughs> that's really helped you out.
2: Right. More recently, probably face masks, hand sanitizer and vitamins were probably the most impactful impact, uh, low cost uh, you know, product. I think, you know, beyond that, I, I think, it's going to sound very silly, but I, I bought these plants. Uh, they're called uh, mother-in-law tongues, but I just, I just love them. And on top, I mean, they're they're plants that the NASA is going to take to Mars. So I thought, you know, if the NASA is going to take them to Mars, they're good enough for me. But basically, they're plants that get lots of. I live in the city center, so they get uh, they break down all kinds of bad stuff, and they actually give oxygen day and night, and and so which is quite unusual for a plant because usually plants give CO2 Uh, I know it's not necessarily in the branded space but I actually have 40 of those plants (laughs) they line my whole flat so one could argue I've gone overboard a little bit, but
1: <laughs> I love it I need to check that out, especially you know when we're working from home, having a little extra oxygen I get a lot
2: of comment. exactly, and I get a lot of comments on my plans because they're behind me <laughs> when i'm when I uh, video call
1: nice, nice, nice well, um, two marketing ish questions for you if you kind of step back from the day job and all the great brands that you're managing yourself, I'm curious if there are brands or companies or causes that you. Are following or or taking notice of? You think other people should should notice as well?
2: Yeah, there's many, uh, of course, that are doing uh, great stuff. I think there's one that I probably it is in uh, beauty, but I want to call out because nobody saw that one coming. It's Roden and Fields. Basically, you know, six years uh, a little below, over six years ago, they were twenty four million dollar in turnover. And then six years later there were one billion dollars. Uh, you know, and not through a massive, you know, of course, when you have Kylie Jenner doing her cosmetics line and all of that stuff, you know, I get it why why that stuff takes off. But basically they built out of their backyard, if you want, a massive skincare brand. Actually, in two thousand seventeen it became the number one skincare brand in the US. Nobody saw that coming. And and the way they did it is is even more amazing right they did it through a completely new business model Uh, they did it through social selling which is basically like tupperware parties but online you know on facebook and they built that out of nowhere and but it is it is quite an impressive way how through of course great product great credentials but then a completely new business model they've completely disrupted the market and i think sometimes when when we do product, I think we should start with what's the business model before we go even into oh, we have this product idea. I think you know uh, for me that they're, they're a great example of that
1: yeah no that's a that's a really good example. well, last question for you, curious what you feel like is either the largest opportunity or the biggest threat ahead for marketers today.
2: Yeah, for me, they're they're both probably the on a different flip side of the coin. But you know, it's it's quite for me. It's around you know, as a marketeer, you need to stay relevant, and the only way you're going to stay relevant in the current times if you drive growth. You know, as a marketeer, you can't just be the pretty pictures department. Uh, you need to drive growth, and you need to be seen as an engine for growth. Because I think I saw some stats recently that says uh, that 30 percent of CMOs only stay in their job for less than 12 months. Like the average CMO tenure is like 27 months or something like that. So as, and, and there was another, I believe that 50% of CEOs think that their CMO is effective. It means one in two think their CMO is a bit useless. So that's where, you know, and, and being that engine of growth in the company by, you know, teaming up with the other C-suites, people in the company, you know, being a growth hacker, like the Roden Fields example that I gave in terms of, you know, disrupting your own business, finding out new business models, but equally connecting business and purpose. That's what we as, as a marketing organization are are uniquely placed to do that, as well as then personalization. And I would say cultivating the unicorns i think those are probably in my mind the unicorns i mean like the tech people like all of the data bits that i you need to be friends with those people and have them in your team and cultivate them and through those things i think you can truly become a growth engine but it's no longer being the pretty pictures department you know the madman days are over
1: Well, Christoph, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a uh, been fascinating conversation. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.